about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. So, being a Christian means trusting Jesus. That's a bit of a truism. Uh, it's a well-worn idea, and it's easy not to think about what that means. Uh, but trusting Jesus is not a technical religious thing. It means actually trusting Jesus. Like it means putting your life in Jesus' hands by following His teaching, journeying with His people, the church. And trusting him to see you through the hard moments in life and the darkness of death. It means letting Jesus be your leader, your teacher, your king, and trusting that he will not let you down, but will look after you. How do we know that it's safe to do that? Like, how do we know that we would not be better off with someone else, or perhaps on our own? Can we really trust Jesus to look after us in the face of all the things we face? Well, we get to see and to hear played out Jesus' own answer to that question in John chapters 9 and 10 which we haven't read yet because, like we did last week, we're doing things a bit different to normal this week. Uh, Most of the sermon is going to be reading through two chapters of John, John chapters 9 and 10. And again, you'll benefit from having the passage in front of you. Um, There are a bunch of printed copies that I put on the side of the pews, so you, you might just grab one of them, John chapters 9 and 10, There's not enough for everybody here. That's because there are also pew Bibles, and it's on page... Somebody call out the page number, if they know. 869 in the pew Bibles is John chapter 9. You could also get it on the World Wide Web on your phone. Uh, BibleGateway.com, John chapter 9. So while you're doing that, uh, can I encourage you to have it before you? Um, Now, at first, these two chapters, 9 and 10, they look quite distinct but they are actually meant to be taken together. Um, Because chapter 10 is a kind of meditation on what we see happen in chapter 9. The whole episode shows us what it means when Jesus declares himself to be the good shepherd. Okay, so we're going to read it together, but to mix it up this week, because it gets a bit same-ish, I've asked Helena to do the reading. So welcome, Helena. It's a long reading, so thank you so much for doing this. So Helena's going to read a section, uh, and then she'll pause, and I'll make a few comments, and then we'll come back to it. If you don't know Helena, this is Helena. Thank you. Helena, let's begin from chapter 9, verse 1. Thanks. Okay, chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying that this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with his saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, this word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then, that your, how then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. So we begin with this wonderful miracle. Um, Jesus heals a man blind from birth. Now, the, the disciples' question when they first see this man, it reflects a way that it's actually all too easy for us to think. We assume that if people are suffering, it must be for a reason. Right? This is the logic of karma. Who sinned? this guy or his parents, right? You get what you deserve. There must be some reason for this. But actually, Jesus says things are not that neat. He refuses this logic. No, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, we don't have time to go into it at length, but I will just notice that this is a really interesting response. The reason Jesus gives, the answer to why he was born blind is a different kind of answer to the one the disciples suggested. They wanted to know what caused this in terms of something that came before it, something that preceded it, some sin or failure that made it happen. But Jesus says this question is answered by something that is going to come after it, by what God is going to do. And this is important because it actually implies that there isn't always an explanation for evil and injustice of the kind we might want. The disciples want the man's suffering to make sense. Jesus says, it doesn't really make sense in that way, but it will make sense by what God will do with it. The, now, the way in which Jesus heals this man is really strange. Uh, what's with the mud, right? If you've read the Gospels, you know Jesus often heals people with a word. Like, he does not need all this kind of gear, you know, and, 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 and activity. Um, what's the deal? But what we're going to see is that this is actually really important in the flow of the narrative because it means that this man ends up being healed without ever actually seeing Jesus. And that's going to be important later on. So let's continue. Thanks, Helena. This next section is long, but stay with it. It's where the Pharisees kind of investigate. From verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, 
and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? If it was your eyes, he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. You know, the thing that really stands out about the Pharisees' response, I think, is their inability to notice and marvel at this extraordinary thing that has happened in front of them. And it is actually pointed out to them, right? The man says one thing, I I don't know about that, but one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. And he he says, you know, nobody has ever heard of somebody opening the the eyes of a man born blind. You know, the wonder of this thing is right in front of them, and yet all they can ask about is, okay, so how, do, how exactly did he do this? And all they can see is that from, from a certain point of view, this is technically a violation of the Sabbath. This is the ordinary stuff that evil is made of. Preoccupation with tech, technicalities, defensiveness about any threat to power, a lack of vision, an inability to see the good that is in front of you because you know how things are meant to be and they're not meant to be like that. The German philosopher Hannah Arendt called it the banality of evil. Because it is evil, isn't it? It comes out at the end 
that final judgment, you were steeped in sin at birth, how dare you lecture us? Their judgment contrasts strikingly with Jesus's. Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but they can't get past their prejudice and their arrogance. If he was born blind, then he's obviously come from sin and he has nothing to teach us, they think. And Jesus sees this failure as very revealing. That's what happens as we continue from verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who will see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is a beautiful moment, isn't it? Where the man comes face to face to Jesus, but he doesn't actually know he's the one because he hasn't seen him yet. But he wants to know. And so Jesus tells him, and he, do, and he, and he realizes that he is seeing him. And Jesus goes on to, to, to kind of use this moment to explain more about God's purposes with this man. God's purpose was to bring judgment. This work served to bring the truth out into the open and to upend the way things see, seem. The blind will see, but those who appear to see won't get it. They won't see, they won't know what's really going on. They will be blind. The reaction of the Pharisees here is so telling, isn't it? They can't believe it. Well, we're not, we're not blind, are we? I mean, you, you can't really be talking about us. And Jesus says, yes. I am talking about you because you are so sure you're not blind. You are so sure, you're so confident. And then Jesus begins to explain himself more fully, and this is where we go in chapter 10. Look, look what Jesus goes on to talk about from verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 
I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So the image of the sheep and the shepherds is really powerful because the prophet Ezekiel in the book of his name, chapter 34, uses this image of shepherds to, 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 to kind of condemn the failures of Israel's leaders. And it's where God promises that he himself will come and be Israel's shepherd. Have a read of Ezekiel 34 if you want to sometime. Um, but Jesus knew this passage and so did his hearers. And so they knew what was going on here. But Jesus also mixes metaphors. If you don't like mixing metaphors, you'll, this is not the passage for you. But he does because he also says, I am the gate for the sheep. In a moment, he's going to call himself the shepherd. But first, he calls himself the gate. Now, don't panic. He's not, you don't have to kind of think of him as some weird kind of gate man, you know. He's just making a number of different points with this image. And the first point he wants to make is to emphasize that he is the one who treats the sheep properly, right? He's been accused of doing things in a dodgy way, ignoring the Sabbath, messing with traditions. But no, he says, I'm the gate. I'm the right and good way for the sheep to go. You know, this is, this is actually the, the, the way to treat people properly. But then he goes on to talk about being the good shepherd. So from verse 11. Thanks, Helena. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I, lo that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? I am the good shepherd, says Jesus. And you know this because I lay down my life for my sheep. It's actually very simple. And my sheep know it. And he says, this is my great purpose. It's the purpose for which the Father sent me. Indeed, the Father, he says, loves me because this is what I am. The shepherd that lay down, lays down his life for the sheep. This is a profound moment because it shows us that when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, he's making a claim, not just about himself and, and his role, he's making a claim about God. He is saying that his being the good shepherd comes right from the heart of God. We'll come back to this at the end. But for now, the hearers are divided and things are set for further conflict, which happens at the Festival of Dedication. And John picks this up in verse 22. 
Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered round him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you are a mere man claimed to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. So again, Jesus' claims circle back to this question about authority. Are you the Messiah? But it's not a genuine question anymore. Jesus has told them more than enough. And Jesus sees that actually there's a hardness in their questions. They are not really open to him. And so he pushes them. He says, my sheep hear my voice, clearly you don't. It might seem harsh, but I'm convinced actually that this is a gracious thing for Jesus to do, to provoke them like this, because he is trying to jolt them to their senses. Right? He sees that they are caught in a current that is is making them drift into a, a position that is more and more hostile to them. And so he, he, he's trying to provoke them to make them see it. But his provocations heighten their host, hostility and they sense blasphemy. Now, he finds a way to rebuke them, uh, to reject their argument even on their own terms, right? He quotes Psalm 82, verse 6, I said you are gods, because he knows that they're not going to understand the complexity of the truth, that they're going to have to reconfigure their whole idea of God to understand what he's saying. But in the end, this can only go in one direction, and he has to flee. Helena, just a couple of verses left. We should finish it off. Thank you. Verse 40. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days, There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, Though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in in that place, many believed in Jesus. 
Thanks so much, Helena. Let's thank Helena for reading. So there's a lot in those chapters. Um, let's just think about what we can take about it, take away from it today. I'll be brief. I think it's a simple message. As I said at the beginning, I think taken as a whole, these chapters give us the answer to the question, why can we really trust Jesus? And they do this through a contrast, the contrast with the Pharisees. In chapter 9, we see the contrast between the way Jesus treats this man who'd been born blind and the way the Pharisees treat him. You can tell a lot about a person by the way they treat somebody vulnerable like that. Jesus treats him with power and love and compassion. The Pharisees treat him as nothing. They write him off as worthless. They have no interest in him at all except as someone they can use to get to Jesus. The contrast is a perfect illustration of what Jesus then goes on to teach. I am the good shepherd, he says. Others are merely hired hands, or maybe worse, thieves and robbers. He calls out the Pharisees' legalistic lovelessness for what it is. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life. And he says, you know that this is true. You know that this is true of me, that I really am the good shepherd, because I lay down my life for my sheep. In the end, Jesus did that quite literally. But what we need to see is that he was already doing it here. By exposing himself in this way, by facing the Pharisees, confronting them, calling them out, calling out their lies and their selfishness and their indifference to the poor, Jesus was already laying down his life. Because all this could only lead in the end to one outcome. It, it led to his death. But what it shows you, Jesus says, is that I really am the good shepherd. And what is more, that goes all the way, that truth goes all the way into the heart of the Lord God. This is not just what I care about, it is what God cares about. Did you notice that sentence? The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life. And did you notice the way he stresses that this is voluntary, this is his choice. No one takes my life from me, he says. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. All of this is intentional. All of this is on purpose. It's not an accident. This is really who I am, says Jesus, into the depths of God. Who can you trust to guard you to keep you, to see you through the challenges of life and the darkness of death. Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, Joe Biden, the barefoot investor, the guardian, some other guru or teacher. None of those are particularly likely candidates a parent, a friend, a pastor. 
Who can really take that weight? Maybe no one. We all know too well there is so much potential for abuse when people are in that position. Maybe we're best off on our own, scary as that is. But actually, no, we need not fend for ourselves because there is Jesus, the good shepherd, and he really can be trusted because from all eternity, he has been and remains the Son sent from the Father whose love is formed by his giving of himself, his laying down his life for his sheep. Do you know, on the surface, it can look like at the end of his life, Jesus kind of lost control. That he was a mere victim at the end, tossed about by evil powers. People did with him what they wanted. But no, all through, he was in command. No one takes my life from me, he says. I lay it down of my own accord. For you. For you, for me. Friends, do you hear his voice? As he speaks in these chapters, do you hear his voice? Do you hear the voice of your shepherd? If you do, if you think you do, trust that thought. He is yours. And he did this for you. He knows you, and you know him, and he will not let you down or in death. Trust him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you as the good shepherd. We hear your voice, and we trust. Lord, we lament the failures of shepherds all over the place, sometimes within the church, sometimes in politics, but we trust you, and we thank you that you will not let us down, Lord, in life or in death. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.